Good morning and welcome to everyone who are, is with us and those who are with us online. We know some folks are, are there and uh, grateful to hear that. You know, I was so uh, sad to miss the Blameless Children event this year. I we had a death in our family and I was out of town and Dan stepped in and uh, right at the end, uh, uh, these three young men came to give their lives to Christ, leaving a life of, addict- of addiction uh, to a life of uh, walking with Jesus and Dan was able to baptize them. I'm a little bit envious to be honest, that I wasn't here, but I'm really pleased that uh, we were able to share in that time and that Dan was able to enjoy that. Guys, it's good to see all of you today, and we're going to continue in a study we began a couple weeks ago, or last week, called This Is What We Do. And, uh, you know, I was thinking back, and uh, just over the last year or so, and there are a lot of memories, a lot of things that down the road when this is passed, we'll think back and, and, uh, and remember. One of those I think was thinking about uh, was uh, that we should never forget the great toilet paper shortage of 2020. <laughs> Guys, remember that? Um, that was about a year ago. The pandemic didn't really have this gastro component to it, but for some reason people began to hoard up toilet paper. You know, it's, uh, it's amazing. The demand, they say, went up 845% overnight. Shelves were empty for weeks, although the supply chain uh, was, was uninterrupted, and uh, it's just amazing. Somewhere in somebody's houses, they've got rooms full of toilet paper. Just, there's just no doubt it was a great boon for that industry, I'm sure. And it wasn't just in the U.S. You know, I'm told in other countries all over the world that they had the same thing. And in fact, the toilet paper was actually, the shortage was far worse than in America. I'm told in a cafe of Australia, they started accepting rolls of toilet paper as payment with a cup of coffee costing three rolls. And that country also had a community-minded newspaper that printed an eight-page section of totally blank paper, white paper, to be used to help ease the shortage. And I read a story about in Hong Kong where uh, there was an armed robbery in the middle of the day in a supermarket where the thieves came in and took nothing but 600 rolls of toilet paper out of the store. Isn't that amazing? Of all the essentials that we might want to have in a crisis, that toilet paper became the most valuable item to hoard. I mean, that's just mind-boggling, isn't it? You know, what we experienced for just is a small example of, of what I call a foro. And uh, you know what foro means, right? It means the fear of running out, the fear of running out. And it's not just a pandemic that sparks something like that. We laugh at that whole thing. Uh, just remembering it, but for a lot of people, foro is how they live their lives financially, the fear of running out, and it doesn't take a pandemic to, to prompt people to do that, to worry about not having enough money to get by on, that in turn leads to what we've been talking about, a lack of generosity. I remember last week we identified this really as a scarcity mindset, a scarcity mindset, and I've seen um, on Facebook and various uh, social media posts, people talk about this in their own life, how meaningful it was to really put their finger on this mindset that discourages us, that can control our lives, control our destiny by having a scarcity mindset. But what is strange in this kind of thinking is that even though we have this fear of running out, people will also at the same time spend money foolishly on themselves, buying things they don't need, things they don't even use, all the while excusing themselves from being generous. Somebody else identified this as FOMO. You probably, you know what FOMO is, right? The fear of missing out. We have all these acronyms, right? The fear of missing out. So whether it's FOMO or Foro, whatever it is, both of these are just signs of being selfish and of having this scarcity mindset. 
In fact, a lot of people live their lives in the scarcity cycle. And we identified this last week, but just to catch us up, that is that God supplies. We know God blesses us, continues to do that. He promises to. We consume what God supplies. And then we start uh, lacking because we spend it on ourselves. We start wearing. We become fearful and anxious about that. That in turn sparks us to spend more because we're afraid that we won't have enough down the road. And the cycle goes on and on. And you know what? It may seem to be all about money. Even though money is a big thing in our life, the scarcity cycle actually starts in our mind. And that might be the most important thing to think about. It's how we think about life. It begins in our mind, not in the wallet. Proverbs chapter 23 says, for as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. As a person thinks in their heart. So all of our actions are not just impulsive, things that we just do. They really begin inside of us. They begin in our mind and in many cases in our heart as well as they become convictions. So all of our choices in life, our spending habits, uh, our lifestyle, our behavioral patterns, all of those things really point back to the way that you choose to think about the world, you think about resources, and in many ways, the way, in many, in many ways, the way you think about God and, and how God provides for us. And they also reflect our level of faith, our level of commitment, our level of self-control, self-contentment, and also of our personal maturity. So today, I want to go a little bit further in the study, and I want to talk, uh, uh, look at a story in the life of Jesus, and I, I was um, a little bit hesitant to do so because Eric actually used this story a few weeks ago. Uh, Eric spoke, did an awesome job. He talked about the fact that the way we grow spiritually is by offering what we have to God and by just kind of giving all that we have, and God in turn will use that and will grow us spiritually in that. But I want to take the story, and I want to kind of uh, dig a little bit deeper. I want to build on what Eric was, uh, how he spoke about it a couple weeks ago. And I want to talk about some lessons that we can learn uh, when it comes to to money from this story about Jesus feeding the 5,000. And we're going to call, uh, we call it Jesus feeding five grand, uh, 5,000 people. But the reality was probably more than that. As as Eric noted, there were probably closer to 20,000 people, including women and children. So that would be kind of like feeding everybody in Rupp Arena. If you've ever been to Rupp when it was full, all those people and everybody waiting in line to get food, you think about the nightmare of what that might be like, just feeding that many people. And, and those people all were hungry, and Jesus is going to provide for them. If you remember the story, Jesus uh, is teaching. This is a, a pivotal time in Jesus' life uh, because it's shortly after the death of John the Baptist, who was a cousin of Jesus, the one who baptized Jesus. He had just been put to death, and there was a fear, I'm sure, among the disciples that they might be next. And I imagine that they were probably thinking that they needed to start saving up some resources. Have you ever noticed that when we start getting anxious about things, we begin to kind of, we call it stock up, uh, and some of us did that last year, right? We began to worry and stock up a little bit, uh, but, we, but it also could be in some level called hoarding at some point. But the disciples, I'm sure, were beginning to worry, should we start taking some precautions. So we start stocking up or storing up some money in, in case we have to leave town because we might be next, you know. They could be uh, uh, the ones that Herod arrested after getting rid of John the Baptist, maybe getting rid of this whole uh, believer thing at one point, and also knowing that Jesus was in danger. So I got a feeling altogether they weren't feeling extremely generous and they weren't feeling benevolent to anybody. They were feeling more a little bit fearful and protective, which we can get to ourselves as well, right? 
But it's in Matthew chapter 14. It says this was what was going on. When Jesus heard what had happened about the death of John the Baptist, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. So here is Jesus having lost his cousin, having lost the one who baptized him, a very close friend and, and co-worker. He had lost this, this friend because of his faith. Jesus was grieving because of his loss, and he decides to go to a solitary place. In other words, to get away from everybody just so he can pray. And he gets in a boat to do that. But, but we have this, I have this picture, this middle picture of Jesus crossing the lake and all this crowd of people running on the shore and knowing maybe where he's going, maybe just following his, uh, his, his travel from the shore, seeing him in the boat. But they meet him there on the shore, and as soon as he gets out of the boat, he's met with all these crowds of people. And Jesus had compassion, and he began to teach, to the, teach them and heal them. And so as it says, as the evening approached, the disciples came to him and they said, this is a remote place. It's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have only here five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, Jesus said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. And then he gave them to the disciples. The disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. So Jesus is teaching, even though he's kind of overcome this, uh, this grief and he's, he's gotten into helping and ministering to people, the day gets away, evening is about to fall, and nobody has eaten throughout the day, and nobody seems to notice that. Jesus didn't seem to notice it. The people uh, weren't, you know, they were, they were enthralled with Jesus, but the disciples, they realized what time it was and what was going on, and they were alarmed that they were about to have a crowd of hangry people, you know, and uh, these people are going, they're going to start wanting some food at, at some point, and they didn't want it to be their problem. They really didn't want to deal with that. These people needed to be dismissed, they said, go out and buy some food, find on your own, it's a, you know, it's a bring your own meal day, but Jesus said, no, you need to feed them. And so you know the story, after a little bit of checking, they find a, a little boy there, the only thing they have, little boy's lunch, two fish and, and five pieces of bread, loaves of bread or biscuits. And obviously this wasn't much, it was nothing, it would take thousands of dollars to buy enough food to feed all these people. Eric did a great job of kind of illustrating what that need might be like. But in this whole story, we see two contrasting views about resources. And that is the disciples viewed this from a scarcity mindset. They said, we don't have enough. We don't even have close to enough. You know, I would imagine some of them thought, you know what, we need to keep this for ourselves. If anybody needs to be fed, it's the team, you know, it's the worship team. That's who we need to take care of. Maybe some of them were benevolent and thought, we really ought to save this for Jesus, I mean, he's the one doing all the work. Maybe we just give him the lunch after we can get him separate from people. And, uh, but we don't have enough for everybody. There's no way we could do that. Have you ever thought in your life there's no way we can do that about anything, about your limited resources, you know? Ever been there, feel like that you're not making enough money to survive? You have a, a big expense coming up, and you know, there's no way we can do that. There's no way that I can survive, let alone I can't give any away. I mean, I'm just barely getting by with what I have. There's no way. Isn't it great that the little boy with the lunch didn't feel like that? 
Isn't it great that he didn't think, man, I don't want to share this with anybody. I'm sure he had come with someone. He didn't even offer it to his family, seemingly. He gave it to Jesus, you know. He didn't feel like that he should hoard it to himself. He gave it up freely. You know, a lot of people live their life that way, honestly. They kind of hoard up what they have. They're kind of afraid that they won't have enough for themselves or that if they uh, don't spend it on themselves, there won't be enough for tomorrow. And it becomes a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, honestly. It really does. The more you try to close in, the more things close in around you. In their minds, they never, ever have enough. The disciples saw scarcity, but Jesus viewed it through the mindset and the lens of abundance. He looked at it totally different. This is the belief that there is more than enough, even though it might seem like a very little. See, you know, Jesus didn't even need the little boy's lunch. He could have created food for them out of nothing, but he started with it, and he knew that this was plenty to feed everybody. The disciples are terrified that there won't be enough, but Jesus confidently said, oh, that's plenty. That's plenty for everybody. And, you know, it's almost comical if you can imagine this. These disciples, I'm sure they got worked up several times. But imagine their, you know, um, almost humor, like just humor him and pretend it's right. But a scarcity thinker asks the question, what can I afford? Or says, I can't afford anything. But an abundant thinker says, what do I have to give? What do I have to give? Even though it might not be much, how much what do I have to give? The little boy certainly was an abundant thinker, right? What can I offer to God knowing that I can't outgive God and knowing that there's more where that came from? Now, we all know the story that what's happened. We've gone over it a couple times. The same God who had given that little boy the two fish and the five loaves of bread and encouraged him to bring it with him that day also uh, took that, multiplied it, and gave the disciples more than enough food to feed everybody. You know, whenever you're challenged to give or see a need, do you think about how little you have or do you think about how much you have? Last week, we spent quite a bit of time talking about how rich we are as Americans. But for many of us living in an abundant society, we feel like that we're on the small end of that, that we have so little. And that's kind of scarcity thinking. The difference in scarcity thinking and abundant thinking is saying, wow, I've got so much. I can't do everything, but what I have, I'm going to make available to God. Many people feel like that they had more or at some point, when they do have more, they'll be much more generous. But like we said last week, the reality is the more we have, the tighter our natural grip actually becomes on it. We feel like the more we have, the more we have to lose. And that may actually be a curse on us as Americans where we don't risk much and we don't do much because we're afraid we'll lose what we have because we've grown spoiled and accustomed to having so much. But we start as believers that with what we have. That's what we do. That's what we do as Christians. We take what we have and we offer it to God. You know, Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? You know, our world tells us that true riches are just wealth, you know, just being filthy rich and wanting more and more. But Jesus kind of disturbs that and and interrupts that kind of thinking by saying, no, that's not really true. In fact, there's a couple things that come from the Scripture. The first one is that God will test us with a little bit of earthly wealth to see how we do before he gives us more. A lot of people fail that test. 
Because a lot of us, we don't understand how to use our worldly wealth. The second lesson, more importantly, that worldly wealth is not true riches. It is not true riches, even though the world thinks it is. We need to give as much as we can away so that we'll inherit or enjoy true riches from God. So the Bible separates worldly wealth and true riches. We'll talk more about that in just a second. But let's get back to the story of Matthew chapter 14. There are a couple of principles that come out of that that I think are really helpful to our understanding of how God works, how God blesses, and how we ought to respond. The first thing, first principle, is that God multiplies what is blessed. God multiplies what is best. blessed. Jesus took what was given to him, the lunch, and the first thing he did, what did he do? He blessed it. He, he thanked God for it, I'm sure, for this meal. And then he asked God to use it for his glory, which is how we should always bless our food and everything we have. And then he gave it to the disciples who gave it to the crowd. What we give to God will be multiplied. You know, I've, I've seen God do some amazing things by people just giving a little bit, and then God multiplies that. I've seen things done financially I never thought could happen. But God did it because he multiplied what we gave. And when we honor God first, generously, it releases God's blessings on what we have and what we keep and every other part of our life. You know, last week we we talked about the idea of the tithe. And we said a tithe is 10% of what we have. And not just 10%, of our income. It's the first 10%. And we talked about that because we said that, that keeping the tithe or recognizing the tithe and bringing it to God puts God first in our life. It honors God in that way. And when God is first in your life, then everything else falls into place. You know, I've seen that happen. I've seen people try to work out a budget and it not work until they tithe first and then it actually worked out. It, it, I think there's a miracle in that. It's a miracle in recognizing God's authority over our life and giving him the first fruits. In Malachi chapter 10, uh, 3, verse 10, it says, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there might be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. So God says, in the, right before that, God says, you're robbing me, and you're robbing yourselves if you don't get generously. But he says, if we do, we set ourselves up to be blessed. God's going to bless us if we acknowledge him. God promises that he will open up the floodgates of heaven, and he will pour out blessings. Not necessarily material things, but heavenly riches, godly riches, we said earlier. God said, I will open the floodgates. You know, that's a really interesting analogy, because that that wording isn't used a great deal in the Bible, the floodgates of heaven. What does that mean? Well, one place we read about it is in the book of Genesis. If you remember, when God was about to flood the earth, he opened the floodgates of heaven and flooded the earth with a ridiculous amount of water, and there was no part of the earth that was not touched by the water. Remember that? It covered everything. But instead of water, I don't think God blesses us with water, but God blesses us and pours blessings upon us, spiritual blessings. Now, I do believe that God blesses us financially when we give financially, but there is the, that is not a health and wealth message. There is a difference between earthly welches, wealth, we, we talked about riches, and spiritual riches. We just read that from Luke chapter 16. And there are some things in life that you can't put a price on, some things that you can't uh, identify value. But when God says, you know what, when I find a heart that puts me first, there is a heart that I will entrust the abundance of heaven to. 
and I will open the floodgates of heaven in their lives. I'm not sure what all that means, but it sounds pretty exciting, to be honest with you. It really does. There, see, there's a general principle in life, I think, that comes in here as well, and that is that you will get out of something about what you put into it. If you don't put much into a relationship, you won't get much out of it. If you don't put much into your job, you won't do that well at it. That's true in most cases, and it's also true in our giving to God. If we have the attitude that we're going to give God as little as we can, then we will probably get as little, very little back. If we show God very little interest, if we show God a little involvement, if we show him little commitment, if we don't read his word very often, we'll not get a great deal out of his word. But if we take the attitude that we want to give God and our lives as much as we can, then I believe God will bless that. And in fact, if we step out in faith and we give beyond what we think is our ability, then we're going to experience the blessings of heaven, the floodgates of heaven being poured out. And then we find ourselves much more invested in what God is doing. The Bible says that where our heart is, there our treasure is going to be also. So it just depends on how committed we are to God and how much we're trusting God. You know, it's like I said last week, I know people who love God, but they don't trust Him with their money. And if they give anything, you know, it's maybe it's a tip to God. Have you ever tipped God? You ever thought, man, God was good to me this week, so I'm going to be good to him. You know, I'm going to give him a tip. Just like that waitress was good to me, so I'm going to, I'm going to give her, her a tip. Or maybe it's just a token gift to God. But a lot of times, those fo same folks are struggling spiritually, not as close to God as they would like to be because they're not willing to trust God deeply. And I know a lot of other people who are deeply committed to giving asking God to bless what they have, and then making it available to God, not every now and then, not tipping God, not a token gift, but giving generously to God, and in fact, giving a, a, over and above a tithe. And those are the people I've found that many other people look at and wonder why they're prospering, not only financially, but more importantly, in other ways, with health and family, personal joy, the abundance, the floodgates of heaven. God's opened the floodgates. And guys, that's where I want to live. I want to live in that place, in that place where God is able to bless, God is able to use us in a special way, and I would love for you to live there as well. I think it just takes a willingness of knowing that we ask God, thankful for what we have, and we ask God to bless what we have, and then we make it available to Him. So God multiplies what is blessed, and then secondly, God multiplies what is giving away. God doesn't multiply what we keep for ourselves. Now, again, in our country, we're pretty independent, and we can provide pretty well for ourselves. Many other countries, people have to recognize God's blessings on what they keep in their life, and they have to depend on Him for their daily substance. But today, in our lives, God multiplies what's given away. And I'm confident that if the disciples had taken that little boy's food, and they had gone around behind a bush and shared it among the twelve, nobody would have been fed, you know? Nobody would have gotten anything, just a few crumbs out of the meal. But, if they, but they instead gave it to Jesus. Jesus blessed it, and then he broke it into pieces, and he started handing it out to the disciples to give to the people, and then it was multiplied. So God multiplies what we give away and, and never ran out. If you read the story, we don't have a lot of details on that, but Jesus just kept giving them out more and more, and the food was multiplied. There's no mention of anybody else showing up with a tractor trailer load of food to help out in the process. It all came springing from this one little meal, and the miracle happened when it was given away. 
You know, I truly believe in God's miracle of provision, and I, be, I think that begins when we give generously. I really believe that with all of my heart. We talked about tithing. We said there's never enough to tithe at the end, and so God's provision starts whenever we recognize his authority at the very beginning, the first fruits of our income. And you will have more when you give it away. I know it doesn't make sense, but you know, I've found that many things in the kingdom of God, in God's economy, don't make a lot of sense, to be honest with you. Everything about being a follower of Jesus is completely counterintuitive to the world that we live in. For example, Jesus said, if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. That doesn't make any sense at all, does it? There are people out there everywhere trying to find themselves. Jesus said, you only find yourself when you lose yourself in me. We will find our life when we surrender to the one who gave us life. Jesus also said, if you want to be great, you have to be the servant of all. That doesn't make any sense at all. To be great, most people think you have to demand that you're in charge. But serving Jesus and other people makes us greater in the kingdom of heaven. So we really shouldn't be surprised whenever Solomon, who was the wisest man to ever live, said, one person gives freely yet gains even more, another withholds unduly but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper, whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. So again, this is from Proverbs chapter 11, and, and Solomon discovered this. Solomon recognized God, even though he was the wealthiest man who ever lived during his time, that if one who gives freely gains more, the one who withholds becomes poor. And that when you give away, other people will be refreshed, but you'll be cared for and provided for yourself. And that really is how God's kingdom works, you know? We are not meant to be reservoirs. You know, a reservoir, everything that flows into a reservoir is pretty much held there. It's pretty much absorbed by the wall, the banks or the dam that's around it. We're not meant to be reservoirs. We're meant to be rivers, to be conduits of God's resources as God directs them to, through us to where they're needed. And we find the joy that comes in partnering with God to meet needs, and then we give the abundance of heaven and see it poured out into our lives. And so it's a win-win. It's a win for God because God is glorified when we give. God blesses us even more, and God's glory is shown. It's a win for other people as they receive. It's a win when we use what we have for the kingdom of God, and we see people one to the Lord. It's their win for eternity, and it's a win for us personally because God will then be free to bless us in ways that we've never been blessed before. So guys, if you're a follower of Christ, I, I want to challenge yourself, like we asked this last week, but do I have a scarcity mindset or do I have an abundant mindset? Which mindset do I have? Am I ready to take a step on my spiritual journey to trust God more and more with my resources, my finances? You know, I, I, I was uh, talking to one of our elders the other day, and and he was just talking about the fact in his life. He said when he began to recognize God's authority over his uh, income and his money, and he began to tithe, there was a huge spiritual step in his life. And I believe that to be true. It's like when we're able to take that kind of step of faith and courage and trust God, it kind of moves us into a place, the next level of our spiritual journey. So I would encourage you to think and pray about that. And to have those difficult conversations with yourself if you're single, sometimes we have to talk to ourselves and, and, and reason with ourselves. But maybe if you're married, definitely have those conversations with your spouse. 
and, and, and ask each other, is this the step that we feel courageous and brave enough to take? And is this a step of faith that we're willing to do so? Now, if you're here today and you're not a believer, I realize this might not make a lot of sense to you. I really do. I think the idea of, of being generous and giving to God is probably one that, that is it come later in our spiritual journey. But when you consider the importance of the life that you've been given, the blessings that we have, and the one who provides all these things, I think it really puts things in perspective to realize that money is a very small thing in our lives. We make it greater than it should be. The greatest thing is our relationship with God. And understand that God isn't so interested in what we have as he is in us personally. That God really wants our heart. And so the things that we've been talking about today, if you're not a follower of Jesus, are things that God will impress in your mind and you'll desire to do that. It'll be something you long to do, not something you resent to do. But understand that God moves through the blessings of his people. God is able to do more as we give. And so that's why we as a church give not only within ourselves and, and the, the ministry of the church here, but beyond the church all over the world. And so that more and more people would know about Jesus Christ. Because God really wants everyone to be saved. Everyone to be led to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you have never given your life to Christ, I would love to have that conversation with you. I'd love to talk about your next step. I'd love to pray with you about what may be going on in your li lives. And I will tell you this as well. You know, I've, I've, sometimes people talk about the stresses of, of life or even marriage, that money is almost always one of those key divisive points. It's always an issue of conflict there. And if you can ever come together on this and recognize God's authority over your marriage and your life and your resources and put things in perspective, it really it smooths out everything. It honestly does. And it takes away that element because we've basically letting God manage this important life, of our, part of our life and our marriage. So I would just throw that in to say it is a, a peace-making tool where we come together and agree that God's in control, and I believe God blesses once we get to that place in our life, and it doesn't become an issue anymore. So I just wanted to challenge you on that and uh, challenge you to recognize where you might be on your walk with the Lord. Um, I'm going to share in a prayer in, this, in just a moment. We're going to have a song of uh, uh, invitation or response, and um, I'm going to be down front. I'm going to ask Tony if he would step over here as well. And if you wanted someone to pray with you, maybe it's not about money. Maybe that's the last thing that, that's on your mind. Uh, maybe it's about your, your personal spiritual needs, something you're struggling with, an illness, whatever it may be. Uh, we'd love to take a few moments and pray with you because that's kind of what the church gathering is all about. It's about fellowship and loving one another. So if you would, uh, to join with me in a word of prayer, and then we'll go into our song of response. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. God, as, as we have been talking about this, this issue of money, uh, Father, it's such a large issue in our lives, and yet in your perspective, it's such a small thing. It really is. God, you understand the fact that, that we need resources to get by, but, but those things can actually become a deterrent and a distraction in our life with you. That, Father, there are people who, who actually would choose their worldly wealth over the heavenly wealth, not knowing the value that, that you offer them. And God, uh, also help us to understand that it, this is, putting this in perspective is a big part of acknowledging your authority over our lives and your provision in our lives. And that, Father, once we get this in, in place, it becomes so much easier to trust you and to know that you're in charge. So, Father, I pray for that peace and that confidence for people. 
Lord, I pray for those here this morning who maybe have not given their life to Christ, and maybe even money has been a barrier, a question in their lives about how they'll manage this if, if they do decide to, to follow you. So, Lord, I pray that you would give peace and comfort and encouragement to those who are here today. Father, you would challenge all of us to greater uh, steps of faith and trust in you, acknowledging that you are Lord over all. And, Father, I pray that as we are obedient that we would see you open the floodgates of heaven, not the material wealth, but the true riches that you offer to your people. So, Lord, uh, thank you for your teaching of your word, your truth, for guidance in a a confusing world about this topic. And Lord, I pray that you would be glorified by our actions and our faith. Father, I, may, I pray that we'll all be drawn closer to you. Lord, I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.